Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Welcome back to Medicine for Good podcast, and thank you for all your downloads. Phase two in women. I love this topic. I am so excited to talk about menopause because this is huge. I'm in it. And so is about 6,000 women each day entering menopause and projected to be like more than 2 million women entering menopause each year in the United States. And the global health market size for menopause will be $22 billion projected by 2028. So what is it? Is it midlife? Is it all about menopause? It may well be considered as women's liberation for many reasons. It is when women walk the world like men with tremendous freedom. No more menstruation, no more bloating, cramping, and irritability every month. No more migraine every period. And no more birth control pills. No more worries about diapers teenage children, and no more worries about getting pregnant, especially during these uncertain times. Yes, menopause is the time where another door opens. It is the time when we can pursue what has been stalled during our busy time of raising children, where we were always laden with guilt when work interferes with the time we want to spend with our children. It is the time when we realize our wants and now ready to pursue them. It is the time when we can operationalize or actualize what we always planned for ourselves, but were halted by marriage, by pregnancy, and raising a family. Time for probably a second career. Time to be better. So menopause, despite all its consequences, should not be viewed as a midlife crisis. It is a normal physiologic change in our bodily functions. It is getting older without getting old. My patients laugh when I ask them, well, when did you achieve menopause? As if there are a lot of awards and rewards. And yes, there are many rewards, but there are misgivings too. The good news is that there are solutions, and we will really expand on this. These are solutions which will be outlined by Dr. Goldman, who we are with today. I am pleased to introduce you, Dr. Mindy Goldman, a clinical professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UC San Francisco, where she directs the Gynecology Center for Cancer Survivors and at-risk women. She has been passionately engaged in the practice of obstetrics and gynecology for almost 30 years now. She recently joined Midi Health as their chief clinical officer to achieve her goal of scaling the type of care that she feels is important and crucial to women. She will share her passion with us today on women's health, how to live with menopause with joy and a better quality of life. 
So Dr. Goldman, let's just get right onto this. So you practice OB for 30 years. So that must be fulfilling. As a young medical student, take us back. What moved you towards OBGYN? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for that lovely introduction. And going way back when I was in medical school, I was one of those medical students that loved everything that I rotated through. And I thought of all different careers, but somehow when I was taking care of women, it just felt different and it felt right. A lot of us who end up in OBGYN like that we can operate and use our hands and need to think fast and do things quickly to get a baby out that may be in trouble or operate on someone who has an ectopic pregnancy, things that you can fix something. And you get to have such an impact on people's lives at various really important times in their lives. So it's kind of just felt right. And it's felt right ever since. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I remember those days when I was a nurse as well. So we did OBGYN also as a nurse and as a medical student. And then of course, with residency, that's it for OBGYN for us. So I wish I learned a lot more about it. But could you tell us now about cancer survivorship and what moved you to transition to this subspecialty? Sure. So my interest was actually always education. And I was lucky enough to be asked to join our faculty at UCSF and was probably on track to do more residency education when I was really impacted by my closest friend getting breast cancer at a very young age. And I was really involved in her care. I helped take care of her with her partner and her parents in the end. I actually helped start a nonprofit that I helped co-found and run for 20 years. She died at home with her, myself, her partner, and her parents. And after that really intense experience of helping care for her, I decided I wanted to shift my career and do more for cancer survivors. And at the time, one of the problems with our cancer center was for most women, they didn't have my friend's experience and more and more people were living with cancer and they were having a tough time getting new people in. And I was all of a sudden coming along saying, hey, I want to do more with cancer survivors and work with the surgeons and oncologists and learn about this care. And so I ended up joining our cancer center at UCSF to learn more about how to provide follow-up care. And what started happening was people would say, hey, this woman was thrown into menopause from chemotherapy. How do we take care of her? Or she's having bleeding issues on tamoxifen, or she needs to know what's a safe form of contraception. And I look in the literature and went, oh my gosh, there is nothing out there. This is back in the early 2000s. And fast forward now 20 years that I feel very lucky to have been able to sort of help develop a field that I sort of think bridges gynecology and breast oncology. And as I've done that, I also realized that many other cancer survivors have similar issues. If you're thrown into menopause from chemotherapy from leukemia or lymphoma, menopause is still menopause. Treatment options may be different, but it's important to know how to treat that. So I feel very lucky that I've been able to both help develop this field and really find a niche that is so incredibly satisfying, which is helping people who've had cancer live a better quality of life, and also seeing people who may be at high risk for cancer and helping them answer women's health questions about their lives. 
That must be fulfilling for you to be able to do that. What is the link to your nonprofit? Oh, it doesn't exist anymore. Oh, it doesn't exist anymore. It was called the Uilani Fund, which was in memory of my dear friend. And we were in existence for 20 years and felt very proud of that, but closed during the pandemic. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm sure you're teaching this at the medical school with residents and fellows, right? Yes. Yeah. And you also deal with what you call as high-risk women. So what is that? What is high-risk? Sure. So particularly when it comes to breast cancer, a lot of people may have a family history. As many as a third of women have a family history of breast cancer in a first degree or a second degree relative, a mom or a sister or an aunt, grandmother, and they have concerns about, is it safe to use hormones when I go through menopause? There are people that have a genetic predisposition to cancer, people that have mutations in genes like the BRCA genes, Mm -hmm. Lynch syndrome. Uh, We know of other genes now that increase risks of cancer. And so as part of this survivorship program, I've also been able to see what we call previvors. So people who haven't yet and hopefully won't develop cancer, but that we can help guide in terms of various treatment options. Just because we're right into this now, and I know I would like to deal with this later or talk to about the value of, for example, estrogen. On those women who are experiencing menopause and they are, for example, at risk for breast cancer, is it safe to use estrogen? That's the big question that comes up all the time. Can I take hormones? We know that when women have increased risk of breast cancer by either having a family history or having, we know, dense breasts is a risk factor. We know that they should be followed differently. So they need to get different types of screening. We sometimes will, if they're really at high risk, we will sometimes offer them medications to prevent breast cancer, sometimes even preventative surgeries. But the biggest thing I try to tell people is just because they have a risk, increased risk of breast cancer does not mean that they can't take hormones. There's a lot of questions about whether hormones increase the risk of breast cancer in general. And I think I'm sure we can get into sort of the WHI, the Women's Health Initiative that sort of looked at that big question about whether hormones were beneficial in preventing diseases like heart disease and whether it had any associated risks like a higher risk of breast cancer. And we know these studies came out 20 years ago, actually. And in the Women's Health Initiative, they actually found that For women who took combination estrogen progesterone, which is used when women have a uterus, they found a higher risk of breast cancer. But when women took estrogen alone, which is used to treat symptoms when women don't have a uterus, they actually did not find a higher risk of breast cancer. And that study has been sort of torn apart and looked at in many different ways, including looking at Those women who were in that study who had a family history or were at higher risk of breast cancer and whether hormones increase their risk further. So one of the things that we've learned from analyzing the Women's Health Initiative, as well as many other studies since then, is that just having a family history does not mean you can't take hormones. It doesn't mean it. if there is a risk of breast cancer with hormones, it's not that having a higher risk adds on to that risk. They are independent risks. And we also know that looking at data from the Women's Health Initiative and other studies, that 
Estrogen alone is a lot safer. There's been 20-year follow-up since that study came out showing that estrogen only actually decreases the risk of breast cancer. And we think now that it's the progesting component of hormones that has breast cancer risks. And nowadays we use different types of progestins than were studied in the Women's Health Initiative 20 years ago. And there are some studies suggesting that these types of progestins that are used now don't even increase risks of breast cancer at all. So one thing I would say is that hormones that we are prescribing now are a lot safer than the hormones that we used 20 years ago. We know a lot more about hormones now than we did 20 years ago. And we also know, getting back to your original question, that for people who may have a higher risk for breast cancer, that hormones don't add on to that risk, that if there is a risk, which is questionable, it is an independent risk. That is good to know because then you could tailor it according to women's risk, right? And then you could monitor them differently. But how about, for example, you say that estrogen is pretty much not a big risk for breast cancer, but how about for endometrial cancer if they still have uterus and they are on this unopposed estrogen to treat whatever their symptoms of hot flashes, mood swings, irritability, or you know, like genital urinary symptoms? Yeah, really great question. We have actually known since the 1980s that if you take estrogen only, that that, and you have a uterus, that that can increase the risk of uterine cancer. So unopposed estrogen alone, estrogen is the component of hormones that really does help out with the classic menopausal symptoms like the hot flashes, night sweats, mood changes, sleep dysfunction. But if you have a uterus and you take unopposed estrogen, it does increase the risk of uterine cancer. And that's why the standard is if someone has a uterus, you balance their estrogen with some form of progestin therapy that protects the lining of the uterus from uterine cancer. Mm-hmm. So if they just want to do, for example, estrogen cream vaginally, just for the genital urinary symptoms like the leakage, the frequency of urination, the predisposition to UTI and painful sex. So the estrogen cream, would that impose the same risk for breast cancer or endometrial cancer? Okay, so let's talk about the different ways that you can use vaginal estrogen. One is a cream, there's a ring formulation, and there is a suppository formulation. And we know that there are estrogen receptive tissue throughout the vagina, the outside vulvar tissue, and that when women go through menopause, many women can complain of various vaginal or vulvar symptoms. Vaginal dryness, pain with sex, urinary frequency, urinary urgency, sometimes increased infections, sometimes incontinence. And we also know that if someone has a vaginal complaint, that the current guidelines are, if you're going to target them with hormones, you should target them with vaginal hormones and not systemic hormones. So first of all, when we give people systemic hormones, which is typically a patch or a pill form of estrogen, that will help out with the hot flashes, the night sweats, mood changes, sleep difficulties, but that may not take care of the vaginal symptoms. So current guidelines are vaginal symptoms should be treated with vaginal hormones. And the benefits of vaginal hormones are that the hormones stay within the vagina with very little absorbed into the bloodstream. So 
we don't see higher risks of breast cancer from someone using vaginal forms of hormones. If someone has had breast cancer, there's certain formulations of vaginal hormones that we think are safer, specifically the ring form and the suppository forms, because in some studies that have actually looked at it in breast cancer survivors, those types of hormones are thought to stay locally in the vagina without absorption into the bloodstream. There's some concerns with the cream that in the typical doses that are used for menopausal women, that there may be some slight absorption into the bloodstream. So for breast cancer patients that have hormone-sensitive breast cancer, we tend to avoid the cream formulations. That is good to know because in the previously, every woman who is a breast cancer survivor were so afraid to touch any formulation of hormones. So it's nice to know that women now could have a life, could have a sex life, right? Mainly because that's usually the main issue is they don't enjoy sex anymore. Who wants to enjoy sex when you're in pain, right? So Exactly. And I, you know, I think one of the things that I try to counsel my cancer survivors is certainly we know they go through so much when they have cancer. People get surgery, they get radiation, they get chemotherapy, they get these hormonal therapies, and it has a huge effect on their well-being. But just having cancer and going through those treatments or being on these hormonal therapies does not mean that someone can't have a good quality of life and doesn't mean that they can't have a good sex life too. Treatment options may be different. For example, we don't give hormone replacement therapy, HRT, to women who've had hormone-positive breast cancer. But there are plenty of alternatives to treat some of their symptoms. And even though I mentioned we tend to not give vaginal cream to women who have had hormone receptor-positive breast cancer, there are other forms of vaginal estrogen that we can give. And we actually can use the creams for tiny amounts applied to the outside if they're getting tears in their outside vulvar skin. Sometimes a little bit of cream rubbed into that area can be very, very helpful. So the biggest take-home that I really try to impress upon my patients is don't feel like you have to suffer. Don't feel like there aren't options. There are many things that you can do to maintain a good quality of life. That is wonderful to know. So we, we don't have to suffer in silence. I mean, menopause is such a destabilizing time in, in a woman's life. And it is like women are living longer and a third of our entire life will be experienced during menopause or postmenopausal state. So, and it's during that time that we have like unwanted or wanted affairs, cooling off of our relationship, potential for divorce, the emptiness syndromes. We suffer a lot already just going through menopause, right? So it's nice to know that we have so many options for different particular symptoms, depending on severity and importance to the women. So we already jumped into the menopause. We started on the hot flashes, but let's go back. What are the statistics on menopause? Yeah. Well, let's talk. Even and how do you bit. define it? Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, let's talk a little bit about what perimenopause is, because that I get a lot of questions about and what, what is menopause. So perimenopause is the months or years preceding menopause, during which time a woman can experience some of the same symptoms that they do during menopause, like hot flashes or night sweats or sleep difficulties. But it's a confusing time because their ovaries are still working, so they can still be having menstrual cycles. 
Oftentimes their periods get irregular, but they get confused because they may not realize that some of their symptoms are related to their hormones changing. Now, interestingly, the average length of time of the perimenopause is actually four to six years. So by the time someone in the average age of menopause is 51. So that means by the early 40s, most women are already starting to be in the perimenopause and may be experiencing some of these symptoms. Menopause, the definition of that is a year without periods. And so that's really important because if a woman has a uterus and she goes a year without periods and all of a sudden she starts to bleed, that's important because it is something that should be evaluated. Average age of menopause in the U.S. is 51. This is interesting because I remembered, you know, like a son attending when our medical students present a case like a 42-year-old woman feeling hot and having night sweats and chills at nighttime. So their differential diagnosis is lymphoma, infection, <laughs> autoimmune disorders, but never menopause. And, and, and it's so interesting. But then perhaps... Or the zebras and not the most common thing. That is, that is right. And of course, these are presented by men, right? So they probably don't know what we go through as women. That is so interesting. So we talked about the most important thing, like you said, hot flashes. That's what we call vasomotor symptoms, where... These hot flashes can be occurring throughout the day. They are transient, lasting maybe a few minutes, but they could also happen at nighttime and can interfere with sleep. So the treatment of that is what? Estrogen? Well, let's talk about all these symptoms and what we see in menopause. By far, those are the most common menopausal symptoms, and they do often disrupt people's sleep. We do know that many women during menopause have sleep dysfunction that may not be related to hot flashes or night sweats, but we also know that hot flashes and night sweats are a common cause of sleep dysfunction. So for many people, as long as, for most women, hormone therapy is a really good option. We know, we talked a little bit about the Women's Health Initiative before, but I think, what, and I mentioned that we know a lot more about hormones now than we did 20 years ago. And what we know is Women that are within 10 years of the onset of menopause, that the benefits of hormones outweigh the risks. So those benefits are in treating those symptoms like the bothersome hot flashes, the sleep dysfunction, but we also know that there are health benefits. We know that after menopause, the risk of heart disease goes up in women. And that's, as you know, that's the number one cause of death. And hormones started within the first 10 years of menopause actually have cardiovascular benefits. There's also some suggestion that using hormones may decrease all-cause mortality, so decrease the risk of dying of anything. It helps out with bone loss. And so there's a lot of health benefits by starting people early. If someone waits until they've been menopausal for more than 10 years, we think that that risk-benefit ratio starts to change and that the risks tend to be a little bit more than some of the benefits. And specifically, actually, there's a higher risk of heart disease when women start hormones at a later age. And we actually see even higher rates of cognitive loss when women start hormones at a later age, certainly after 10 more, the best data is for people starting like even 20 years past menopause, that really those risks markedly outweigh the benefits. But early on, the benefits certainly outweigh the risk. So for most women coming in with 
sleep dysfunction, as long as they're a good candidate for hormone therapy, that's first-line recommendation. There's also alternatives to hormones for people like breast cancer survivors who can't or shouldn't take hormones. There are medications. One, for example, is gabapentin, and that often in high doses is used for treating neuropathic pain, sort of nerve-related pain, but in low doses can modify hot flashes and actually cause some sedation. And then there's also a lot of lifestyle things. I mentioned, you know, I'm working now at Midi Health, which is a digital health platform that's focused in perimenopause and menopause. And we lean really heavily into lifestyle modifications. There are many things that people can do to improve their sleep. Simple thing is making sure that you have at least three hours from eating dinner to when you go to bed with nothing to eat or drink. The benefits of that are it allows your body to metabolize food better, which helps out with your sleep. If you give yourself a big caloric load before bed, when your body metabolizes that, it can give off heat and that can worsen nighttime hot flashes and night sweats. And so in not eating, you may help out with some of those bothersome symptoms. And it also helps with weight. And we know that weight is another big problem that people will oftentimes come in complaining of during the menopause. We know that estrogen affects glucose metabolism. We see an average of a five pound weight gain in the immediate years after menopause. We see fat shifting. It changes the hip to body fat ratio and that hip to abdomen. So there's a lot of changes that can happen at the time of menopause that aren't just like the classic symptoms that people come in asking about treatment. And so I think one of the things that's also really important is just talking to people about their overall health as they age, their cardiovascular health, their bone health, their cognition, their weight. And all of that is tied into menopausal care. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. I know. I mean, I remembered when I went through menopause, the extreme fatigue with someone who has all the time, this 200% energy. I was so extremely fatigued. My sleep was really, really off. So it's that, the hot flashes, the acute, you know, the acute symptoms like hot flashes, fatigue and aches and pains uh, and stuff like that. I said, what's happening with me, right? And then of course, in addition to that are the annoying things like when your kid said, oh, mom, you wiggle in the middle there, this <laughs> mid-abdominal poof and stuff. <laughs> and then what's the worrisome one is the, of course, forgetfulness, the brain fog that women experiences, and they're worried about early onset of dementia. What would you advise those people who are so worried about it because they can't find the right words for terms and stuff like that? So what would you tell them? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think a lot of people that experience the brain fog are really worried about Alzheimer's. And I think one of the things to realize is for, although certainly cognitive loss is something very important to diagnose, for the vast majority of women coming in with these brain fog issues, it's not something like early dementia or subsequent development of Alzheimer's. And we know that there are many things that play into brain fog. I think there's a lot of lifestyle things that people should focus on that can actually really help out with their brain fog making sure they're getting regular cardiovascular exercise, decreasing stress, whatever ways that they can do that, whether that's with mindfulness, things like yoga, various ways that people can work on decreasing stress, because we know that stress can affect 
our overall well-being. It can affect our sleep and sleep dysfunction can really affect brain fog. So one of the biggest things I find when someone's coming in with brain fog is I really dive deep into what's their sleep like. How many hours of sleep are they getting? Do they have trouble falling asleep? Do they wake up in the night? Do they wake up feeling rested? And I really try to work on many of the sleep hygiene things that we talk about to improve people's sleep. And then I try to ask them, how does their brain, how do they feel their cognition is or their brain fog is on a night that they're really well rested? There are people that we may try on hormone therapy to see if that helps out with their brain fog. And so I think that it's not like a one quick fix, but I think the important thing is for people to realize that it doesn't mean that they're losing their mind, doesn't mean that they're going to develop future dementia or Alzheimer's. But I think looking at all the different factors in their lives, like you were talking about the various stressors and teenage kids and aging parents and things that could be contributing along with the hormonal dysfunction that's, you know, they're, they're loss of hormones. And so sort of looking at the big picture and fixing the things that you can fix. And of course, there are other contributing factors also like a baseline anxiety disorder or depression, right? So totally, also... but if you haven't even hit into that is all, you know, mm -hmm. certainly mm -hmm. during menopause, we see a lot of people coming in with mood disorders. Although there is a common misconception that people think menopause causes depression and it doesn't. But if someone is inherently susceptible to a mood disorder, a common time period in their lives when it may occur is during the menopause. So certainly if someone is having cognitive loss or brain fog in the context of also having anxiety or a mood disorder, it is crucial to treat that anxiety and mood disorder and then see what happens to their cognition. And that's what I meant of certainly looking at the patient, looking at the woman as a whole and trying to fix all the different components that could be contributed to that brain fog or loss of cognition, loss of those words, all of the things that people come in saying. It is so nice that you're practicing this holistic approach. So before we depart from estrogen therapy, could you discuss a little bit about the contraindication or relative contraindication for estrogen therapy? Yeah, we've already talked about cancer. So people who have hormone-dependent cancers like breast cancer or high-risk endometrial cancers, early-stage endometrial cancer, people can actually use hormone therapy, but later-stage endometrial cancers, they can't. People who have had a prior blood clot, particularly if they were on hormones when that happened, so they were on birth control pills and they had a blood clot, that would be a contraindication. It's actually interesting that just having had a clot without it being induced by hormones isn't necessarily now an absolute contraindication because there's been a lot of studies looking at estrogen and clot risks. And we actually know that transdermal or patch formulations of estrogen are a lot safer and may not increase the risk of clots at all. So when people take a oral pill of estrogen, and that's metabolized by the liver, it affects clotting profiles differently. And we know that that can increase oral estrogen can increase the risk of blood clots. But there's been some more recent studies suggesting that transdermal estrogens may not increase risk at all. So certainly in patients who've had clots, 
because that's always been considered a contraindication, we talk about alternatives. But if it was a clot that occurred, for example, they had a big orthopedic surgery and were laid up in bed and developed a blood clot, had nothing to do with hormones, there are times that we might consider it. Migraines is another one that people will come in saying, can I take hormones? If someone has migraines with aura, that's sort of been a relative contraindication because people worried that that could increase their risk of stroke. And we know certainly that oral estrogens can increase the risk of stroke. Some studies have questioned whether that's actually whether migraines with aura really are a contraindication to using hormones. No aura, not a contraindication. With aura, again, I think someone should discuss the risks and benefits. Certain types of heart disease, if someone has uncontrolled high blood pressure, they shouldn't be taking hormones. If they have vaginal bleeding and we don't know what's going on and we can't assure that it's not cancer, they shouldn't take hormones. If they have really bad liver disease, because particularly the oral forms of estrogen are metabolized by the liver, they shouldn't be taking estrogen. There are certain bleeding types of disorders, some of the lupus anticoagulants, some of with lupus or other types of clotting disorders where it's a little bit more controversial. Some are contraindicated to use hormones, others aren't, but it's important to discuss with a provider if someone does have a history of some sort of bleeding problem, whether the type of issue they have, whether hormones would be a reasonable thing to consider. That's nice to have all of that data brought up in this podcast. But could you talk about like testosterone? What is the value of testosterone? Yeah. And what happens with menopause? Where, where is testosterone synthesized? Yeah. A lot of controversy over testosterone. Some of the makers of testosterone in the past think it improves everything from overall well-being to muscle mass. Libido. Libido. In women, the only good studies that have really shown a benefit to testosterone is in improving sexual functioning in postmenopausal women, not in premenopausal women. And we actually have other drugs that are FDA approved to treat low libido in premenopausal women. But in postmenopausal women, testosterone has been shown to improve libido. It is not FDA approved for women. And so if you give it to women, you need to either use a very low dose, like one-tenth of a male dose, or send someone to a compounding pharmacy. And there's some issues with that because there's no FDA regulation. And so you have to ensure that there's less assurance about purity and making these products. There's been studies that showed in compounded formulations, the actual amount of the drug can vary quite a bit from different places, depending on where it's sourced. There's also a misconception that testosterone levels affect someone's well-being or their libido, meaning you can find someone who has low testosterone, has completely normal sexual functioning, and just the opposite. So when you're treating someone, you don't want to treat based on a level, you want to treat based on their symptom. But again, the only time that I would consider using it is in postmenopausal women complaining of sexual dysfunction. But in general, we try to treat the dryness first, because if it hurts to be touched or have penetration, that's going to set something up of who wants to do something painful. Once you treat that, then we sometimes will look at testosterone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So you talked about compounding pharmacy, right? Where are they? I mean, we always have difficulty figuring out where is this compounding, you know, this pharmacy who would do all of this compounded formulation? Yeah, there are different compounding pharmacies in different communities. Again, some of the difficulties are ensuring that the drug that you are getting actually has the amount of drug that you hope is in that. There are many places that people will compound various formulations of estrogen and progesterone. And there's a lot more controversy over that. All of the large guiding organizations have come out with position statements saying these compounded formulations that a lot of women may choose to use because they think they're natural, so they must be safer, that we don't have as much regulation over. And until we have good randomized control trials, which are the type of studies you really want to do to understand the risks and benefits of something that people can't assume that just because they're natural and you know made from natural substances, that they must be safer. There's a lot of misinformation, I think, between compounded and the term bioidentical. Mm-hmm. And bioidentical actually means similar to the chemicals produced within our body. And we actually have many bioidentical forms of estrogen that we use, the patches of estradiol, those are all bioidentical. But I think a lot of people use that term when they're really talking about compounded formulations. I'm glad you clarified that because a lot of people are using the terms about like they are the same thing, right? So now you talked a little bit about lifestyle modification, a good healthy diet, exercise, Tai Chi, Pilates, yoga. Let's talk about naturopathic medicine, the uh, role of like dietary supplements. You know, I always get asked, should I take black cosh or whatever? Could you expound? Sure. Yeah, I actually, that's one of the things I've learned a lot about being at MIDI. We have uh, naturopaths that have helped us in coming up with some of our treatment protocols to provide evidence-based guidelines for the safe use of supplements, herbs, and botanicals where the evidence exists. So for example, there is evidence for the use of black cohosh in treating hot flashes. Also maca in improving hot flashes and may improve libido. Siberian rhubarb is another one. Certainly we all know about supplements like calcium and bone health, but the whole field of integrative from cognitive behavioral therapy, to acupuncture, to yoga, to hypnosis, and supplements and botanicals is definitely an area that I think is less studied. And there's been less sort of good quality studies. And I think a lot of people steer away from it because they just don't know. But I think for many for many people that are interested in trying naturopathic approaches, there are things that can be very helpful. Sometimes one of the things that I've learned is it takes a while longer for some of the botanicals like black cohosh, for example. It may take four weeks before patients start to see a benefit in improving hot flashes. So you can't assume that the same benefits and timeline for those benefits exist for the botanicals than they do for some of the more the prescription meds. Some of the problems in studying this whole area is that in botanical medicine, In some studies, they're looking at the entire plant, some just the root or portions of the plant. So it's hard to, you're not comparing apples to apples when you're looking at some of these studies. And that's why I think there's a lot less information that's known about some of these areas. 
But I think it's important if someone is interested in looking at things, not just lifestyle, but some of these other integrative and complementary approaches that it's important to talk to a provider who has experience in there and can give them information about what's safe and what might not be safe interactions with other medicines and things of that sort. Yeah, yeah. And a clear-cut communication with their primary care provider, exactly. right? Because, exactly. because sometimes they have mixture of medications that they're taking. And so you don't know really which one is uh, working. So Yeah, and about- I think they, they actually think, oh, these aren't meds. So they forget to tell their primary care that mm-hmm. they're on them. That's another thing to try to make sure of telling people you need to include in your list of any prescription meds, herbs and botanicals need to be included too, because there are times where there's contraindications or there may be interactions with other medications. That is true. That is true. We're about at the end. So I would like to ask you some take-home pearls. And then also, I want you to put a shout out for Health and see how to connect with you. Sure. I think in terms of take-home pearls, I want people to realize that of all the misconceptions that people have about hormones out there, for the vast majority of women who are within 10 years of menopause, that the benefits of hormones outweigh the risks. And that the types of hormones we are using now compared to 20 years ago are a lot safer. We individualize and people do not have to feel like they have to suffer with menopause. I want them to realize that there's alternatives to hormones. There's lifestyles, there's integrative, there's botanicals and herbs, all things that can help out in managing people's menopausal symptoms. In terms of shout out to MIDI, I'm very proud to be a part of MIDI Health. It, as I mentioned, is a telehealth platform. We do telehealth visits focused in perimenopause, menopause. We do sort of primary care light. We do obesity management, weight management. We help manage bone health, skin and hair. We're developing protocols for longevity. We do sexual dysfunction, anxiety, mood disorders, brain fog. We work with people's existing primary care providers. We're not trying to take people from their doctors. If they don't have a provider, we try to make sure they get reestablished, help get them up to date with all their healthcare maintenance. We can send them for blood work and mammograms and refer for pap smears and colonoscopies and bone densities. And we can help manage them before they may need to get into our specialist or maybe manage them and keep them from having to get into a specialist. Mm -hmm. I'm particularly going to be helping them launch a cancer survivorship platform. We take most all major insurers, not yet Medi-Cal and Medicare, but we're working towards that. I know you've been at Stanford and we're working. We are actually a preferred provider. We will be a preferred provider for Stanford employees. So we launched in uh, May and we are in California now. And before the end of the year, I think we're hoping to be in 26 states, but we will be launching nationally and we're happy to see patients. Hey, go to our website, very clear. I'm going to MIDI Health. It's really clear of what we treat and how to make an appointment, and we can get people in pretty quickly, which is something that I think is a lot of medical practice are struggling with. That is a big challenge for all of us. I'm in primary care, as you know. So thank you so much, Mindy. To know more about MIDI Health, please look up joinmidi.com. MIDI is spelled M-I-D-I. Joinmidi.com. There you go. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mindy. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoy the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you in our next episode.